Blog Talk Radio. From the offices of Live in the Balance here in Portland, Maine, this is Dr. Ross Green. Time for another episode of Helping Behaviorally Challenging Students. I'll be with you for the next 45 minutes or so, uh, where we will be talking about anything and everything related to helping behaviorally challenging kids at school and understanding what's getting in their way and solving problems collaboratively and organizing the effort in your building. Uh, this is a good day for uh, questions, if you have any. That call-in number is 646-727-2691. I've got a bunch of uh, emails lined up to answer, but callers always take priority on this program. 646-727-2691. Um, how you doing out there? It is a gray rainy day here in Portland. Um, I know all the kids are ready for school to get out. I know a lot of teachers have told me they are running on fumes right now and are ready for the kids to get out as well. Uh, Well, only a few weeks left until that, but then of course it starts all over again in January. And all those kids who've been giving you trouble for the first three or four months of the school year, they'll they'll be there waiting for you in January. And if those kids are still giving you trouble and you haven't figured out what their lagging skills are, well, I know one single-sided, single-sheet of paper that will help you do that, the assessment of lagging skills and unsolved problems, and you can download it, as you probably know, for free from the paperwork section of the Lives in the Balance website. If you haven't figured out what their unsolved problems are yet, those unsolved problems will still be there when you come back in January. Um, Unless you want to try solving them now. Not all of them. You won't be able to solve all of them in the next two weeks. There's a big pile of them. But why not get your feet wet solving them collaboratively instead of unilaterally? Really nothing to be lost solving the problems unilaterally, probably in getting the job done. Nothing to be lost. Everything to be gained. Does solving problems collaboratively take time? Yeah. Does it save time? Yeah. I find the faster we try to go to solve problems with kids, the longer it takes. And the more time we take solving problems collaboratively with behaviorally challenging students, the less time it takes. Sometimes it is our desire to fix things quickly that is a big part of why it's taken so long to fix. Um, Time is a major concern to 
people in schools before they learn how to do Plan B and before they learn how to use the assessment of lagging skills and unsolved problems, but I don't find people complaining about time very much once they've got the ball rolling and they're starting to get good at it. The model of those folks is solving problems collaboratively saves time. Shall we start with some email? In no particular order. Here we go. Dr. Green, I've been to one of your one-day seminars and also attended the second annual Lies in the Balance conference with a colleague. Fantastic. We have just completed a book club based on Lost at School and gave a preliminary presentation at an all-school staff meeting. As you can imagine, some staff are very psyched to shift our thinking. Others are very skeptical. Good. Good for skeptics for being skeptical. That's me talking now. Back to the email. Our school psychologist is cautiously curious but thinks there is a huge disconnect with the student population labeled severely emotionally disturbed and wonders if the model is truly effective with these students. He genuinely wants to learn more about your method, even though he questions whether it can work with those who have so little insight that it would be, in his words, impossible to get to the collaborative stage. He also questions the teenagers he has interviewed who get off, that's in quotes, on doing the wrong thing and challenges the veracity of the kids do well if they can mantra with such teens. I pointed out that I am quite sure such students do have lagging skills and that is why they are operating maladaptively. With respect to the quote-unquote emotionally disturbed population, I believe many of these students could benefit from your method, but that we probably need some real expertise to help us. I encouraged our colleague to get in touch with you, but I couldn't help myself. I'm curious as to your response. Well, here it is. Let's take it one point at a time, shall we? Point number one. Uh, first of all, skepticism is a great thing. Um, I'm skeptical if people buy anything that is not consistent with what they've been believing all along, hook, line, and sinker instantaneously. Now you got me skeptical. Uh, skepticism is a good thing because it says that people are thinking about what they've just heard trying it on for size, weighing it against what they've been thinking all along. Now, there's a little bit of a problem with what they've been thinking all along. We humans, we have this nasty little tendency to pay attention primarily to evidence that confirms our existing beliefs and evidence that disconfirms our existing beliefs. We tend to discard. So if somebody is hearing about something that is in contrast to what they've been thinking all along, then it's also in contrast to what they've been paying attention to all along. And this is not going to be so easy because we do tend to talk ourselves into what we're believing already. I know that sounds strange, but it's the human way. So 
I get it that people who hear about this model uh, don't um, necessarily buy it hook, line, and sinker immediately, and I think that's a good thing. I'm always happy when people are open to it, and your school psychologist sounds like he's open to it, but now he's thinking about the kids he's worked with over the years and what he's been thinking about them all along. And what he's been thinking about them all along is not congruent with what you're telling him about them. So this is going to take some doing. It's going to take some convincing. Now here's here's the tricky part. The students labeled severely emotionally disturbed. I never know exactly what that means. Um, uh, I don't know what that means. In, in different school systems, that means different things. But let's assume that we're talking about the kids who are at the severe end of the challenging behavior spectrum. Maybe they have diagnoses. Mm, maybe I don't know. Maybe some of them were diagnosed with uh, conduct disorder. I mean, what counts as severe? Polar disorder? I mean, those are certainly severe disorders, but that just tells us that what the kid looks like when the kid is looking bad is more extreme. So I'm not sure what severely emotionally disturbed means, and therefore it's hard for me to answer in a really specific way about whether the ingredients of this model figuring out what skills a kid is lacking, figuring out the specific conditions in which those lagging skills are making it difficult for the student to meet our expectations, in other words, unsolved problems. Uh, well, you know, I've just talked myself into it. I would, I would uh, try to figure those things out with a student labeled severely emotionally disturbed trying to imagine why I would deprive a student labeled severely emotionally disturbed of the advantages and benefits and compassion and lenses of lagging skills and unsolved problems, especially since I don't know what severely emotionally disturbed means. It's one of those categories that schools create to try to figure out what to do with a kid, but often those categories become so heterogeneous that they lose their meaning if they ever had any meaning at all. Let's think of what else the model might bring to students labeled as severely emotionally disturbed. It would bring three options, plans A, B, and C. Uh, I'm not doing plan A with a kid labeled as severely emotionally disturbed. No way. It's just going to set them off. Because if he's been labeled severely emotionally disturbed, one one big reason he's probably been given that label is because he doesn't respond to plan A. Now, why would I do something with him that he's not going to respond to? I wouldn't. That leaves two options. C. C is where we're saying, um, plan C is where we're saying, uh, given the number of unsolved problems that have accumulated for this student over time, uh under no circumstances would we want to try to solve them all at once. Now, why would I want to deprive a student labeled as severely emotionally disturbed 
of the benefits and advantages of prioritizing. I, I wouldn't want to do that. Um, then there's Plan B, where we are solving problems collaboratively with the student and trying to figure out why he's having difficulty participating in that process. And finally, at long last, if he's able to participate, figuring out what's getting in his way, what his concern is, what his perspective is, we're getting to know him. Now, why wouldn't I want to do that with a student labeled as severely emotionally disturbed? That is exactly what I'd want to do with a student labeled as severely emotionally disturbed. Okay, let's move on to the next part. I think I might say the same thing all over again. Can it work with those who have so little insight that it would be impossible to get to the collaborative stage? Well, we I don't typically find that it's really insight that we're looking for per se from a student. I'm just looking for his concern or perspective. I'm looking for what he can tell me about what's getting in his way. And I find that many students who people tell me don't have insight are the ones who don't have insight when we're doing plan A. You don't get a whole lot of insight out of plan A. The main insight you get out of plan A is what a kid's going to look like when he's looking bad because plan A is going to set him off. You probably already have that insight. But as it relates to insights the students could give us about the unsolved problems that are setting them off, I, I can't say that I have noticed that students labeled as severely emotionally disturbed give us less information than any of the others, getting information out of a kid. I don't find that's about insight. I find that's about adults drilling well, drilling for information well. That's what I find. Ah, and then the last part. This is all about lenses, this last part. He also questions the teenagers he has interviewed who get off on doing the wrong thing and challenges the veracity of the kids do all if they can mantra with such teens. Well, that's lenses. Uh, thinking a kid is getting off on doing the wrong thing. Um, I think that we need to help the school psychologist sit in on some meetings when, with the assessment of lagging skills and unsolved problems as the discussion guide. I think the school psychologists would benefit greatly, as would a lot of the other people in the building, particularly the skeptics, but everybody else too. I think they'd all benefit from um, sitting in a meeting where a particular student's lagging skills and unsolved problems are being identified. Hard to come out of those meetings without coming face-to-face -face with the fact that this student is indeed lacking skills. Hard to come out of that meeting without being convinced that those lagging skills are getting in the kid's way under highly specific conditions. That the kid is not having difficulty meeting all of our expectations, just some, the ones where the skills they're lacking are being demanded. 
hard to come out of that discussion without new lenses on. I don't know how much expertise you're going to need to help the students that are being called severely emotionally disturbed. I, you're welcome to call the program and tell me who it is you're talking about and what it is about them that makes them not good candidates for this model. Um, but I think this model is exactly what I'd be doing with any kid who has significant or even not so significant behavioral challenges. There's my answer. The phone number, if you want to call in one of these days, if you want to comment on the answer, and um, my assistant, Whitney, does notify people when a question has been answered on the program, and she sends you the link to the program so you can listen to the answer. But feel free to call in anytime. That number again, 646-727-2691. Here's the next one. Oh. Mm -hmm. Here we go. Dr. Green, I attended your talk in Kingston, Ontario tonight. Actually, I'm reading this four days later. I gave that talk in Kingston, Ontario last Thursday night, which would have been December Today's the 10th, 9876. That would have been December 6th. That was a fun night. Great group. I don't remember how many people were there, maybe 150, all parents. And, they, you know, they didn't come out to hear me talk about the uh, U.S. presidential elections, although we did. So, you know, we're, we're, we're trying hard to move our politicians to the point where they can actually solve problems collaboratively. Um Maybe that's what President Obama and uh, Representative Boehner are doing right now. Maybe they're putting their concerns on the table and trying to come up with solutions that will address the concerns of both parties. So often what we see in the presidential and vice presidential debates is people putting solutions on the table, not acknowledging each other's concerns and simply dismissing or trashing the other party's solutions. So what happens when you have solutions on the table instead of concerns? You find to have solutions on the table, but got to get concerns on the table first and no trashing, no dismissing, assuming the concerns of both parties are legitimate. What a concept. Well, anyways, back to the email. Dr. Green, I attended your talk in Kingston, Ontario tonight, and I wanted to ask you this question. Why do you and Lives in the Balance send out anonymous care packages to people? Oh, you're talking about the care packages. Um, 
yes, Lives in the Balance does at, at people's requests, and of course this is the only thing on the website anymore that costs money, and we lose money on them. We just do it as a public service if you know somebody who you think needs to know more about this model. You can send them a care package for, I think it's, you know, I haven't looked lately, but I think it's $35 in the U.S. more elsewhere because it costs more for us to ship it elsewhere. Um, and we don't let people know who requested them the care pa- that the care package be sent because a lot of people would love to make sure that other people get the information but don't want the other people to know who decided they needed it. That's why we send them anonymously. Um, We wouldn't want people fearing retribution. We wouldn't want people fearing that they're going to get into trouble. Um, You know, sending information to somebody who you think could be doing it better can be a delicate proposition. And we find that doing it anonymously... um, is the better way to go. Hope that answers the question. Let's try another, shall we? That was a quickie. Hang on. Hi there. We have a book club going on right now based on Lost at School. A number of times now I have tried to show a video from the Lives in the Balance website, and the viewing has been very slow with lots of waiting for it to completely download. I have also noticed that when I watch one on YouTube, it is much more seamless. What's up with the videos on the website? Any ideas? Uh, Yeah, uh, they work better on YouTube and not so well on the website. That's my idea, but we're working on it, and um, we hope to have seamless videos on the website within the next month or two, and new ones too. Um, we're working on it. You know, one thing I'll say about Lives in the Balance, you give us feedback, we're going to respond to it. Slow videos, we're going to speed them up. Um, there's a resource on the Lives in the Balance. We're, 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 we're going to make our Facebook page more responsive as well. We have... Um, not tended to have been very oriented towards social media. Um, And I only tweet to remind people of the radio programs. If you want me to remind you about the radio program, sign up for my uh, Twitter feed. I think it's Dr. Ross Green, D-R-R-O-S-S-G-R-E-E-N-E. You'll get a reminder sometimes five minutes before the program, sometimes after the program's already begun. Depends how crazy I am before the program. But we do try to be responsive. Oh, any town elementary begins in January. Yes. In the same way that any town high school learned how to implement the model, uh, On live web-based radio, we now have, a, have an elementary school that's going to do the same thing. And here's the cool part. We're actually going to listen in to their meetings where the assessment of lagging skills and unsolved problems is being used as the discussion guide. We're actually going to listen in 
as they're doing plan B with a real kid. Don't worry. Got our, all our permissions all squared away. When is that going to start? I'll tell you right now the exact date. Anytown Elementary will be on the air live on this program on Monday, January 14th. Monday, January 14th, Anytown Elementary begins. Monday, January 7th will be the Educators Panel. Monday, December 31st, there will be no program. It's New Year's Eve. Monday, December 24th, there will be no program. It's Christmas Eve, which means that our program next week on December 17th, and I think I've got a good interview lined up for you, with a principal that's implementing the model in her building. Uh, Monday, December 17th, will be our last program of 2012. Next email. Hi, Dr. Green. Um, I'm the school psychologist in a middle school. We are using your videos as a training to implement your model in our building. We've assembled a team of counselors, teachers, and administrators to learn the process together and to begin working with students. Our model is to have a case manager assigned to a teacher who presents concerns to the team. When the point person for the team receives a request for help, the case manager will help facilitate the process with the teacher and student. Question number one. Should the case manager meet with the teacher prior to scheduling a meeting with both student and teacher? Question number two, how about involving parents in this process? Um, Two questions, two answers. Question number one, first of all, comment number one, good for you for implementing the model in your building. Good for you for assembling a team to learn the process together and to begin working with students. Um, There are really kind of two Here's question number one, then I'll answer it. Should the case manager meet with the teacher prior to scheduling a meeting with both student and teacher? Well, um, I think that there are two components to the model, really. The identification of lagging skills and unsolved problems and the doing of plan B. You want to have a discussion with the people who work with the student in the building before you do plan B with them, if I understand your question correctly. Because you want to document and identify all the students' lagging skills and all the students' unsolved problems so that you can then decide which unsolved problems you want to prioritize and you can then decide who's going to be taking primary responsibility for solving the problem with the student. But you've got to know what the problems are before you can prioritize, and you've got to prioritize before you know who's going to take primary responsibility for solving each problem with each student. So I think that there's a discussion among adults in the building that takes place about the student, or at the very least, at the very least, between the person who you seem to be calling the case manager and the teacher who's working with the student, because 
um, I can't say enough about making sure people have the right lenses on lagging skills and making sure people know about the mountain of unsolved problems that has accumulated for this student over time because of those lagging skills. And I think that there's something very much to be said for doing all of that before you try to decide which unsolved problems you're working on. Otherwise, here's what I see happen. People don't identify all of the unsolved problems. They just identify two or three. Those are the two or three they start with, and then as they're in the middle of working on those two or three, they discover that there's other ones that they wished they had started working on, but because they didn't identify as many unsolved problems as they could in the beginning, now they're sort of stuck between the ones they started on and the ones they wished they'd have started on. I think it's a lot easier to prioritize when you know about the mountain that lies before you the mountain of unsolved problems. All right, I'm not even done answering that part yet. But I think that the case manager would also want to meet with the student, and the student is not in that meeting. Why is the student not in that meeting? Because if the student is in the meeting, then the teachers in the meeting may not feel like they can speak freely, and furthermore, they really don't want to have the kids sitting around disagreeing with everything they say as they're trying to identify lagging skills and unsolved problems. And the truth is they may not want to be identifying the lagging skills and unsolved problems in front of the student. They may want to say stuff that they would never want the student to hear. But there is something very much to be said for meeting with the student separately before doing Plan B so that you can gather information about unsolved problems from the student. Students tend to be excellent sources of information on unsolved problems. Now you're ready to prioritize. Now you may be ready to put them together to try to start solving problems together, but that's a judgment call too. I wouldn't say you're always putting student and teacher together. You've got to be smart about it. Can these people talk together yet? What's your feel for that? Um, if they're not quite ready to be in the same room together, you may have to do shuttle diplomacy early on to set the stage for them to be able to be in the same room together, talking together. But now you know all of what I would do before I put these two people in the room together to solve problems. Question number two, how about involving parents in this process? Well, unless the school has a very unique relationship with the parents, and I think that's rare. I don't usually recommend that parents be in that first meeting where the assessment of lagging skills and unsolved problems is being used as the discussion guide. I, once again, want the educators in the meeting, the school staff, to feel like they can speak freely, and um, sometimes they don't speak freely if the parents are in there. And sometimes um, well, you don't want parents disagreeing with what you're saying either. It's, it's hard enough to get through all of the lagging skills and unsolved problems in a fifty minute meeting. Now, is communication with parents a fantastic thing? Yes. Do we want to invite the parents to a second meeting where we can gather information about lagging skills and unsolved problems from them about their child? Yeah, just not in the first meeting. 
because we want school staff to feel like they can speak freely. Is it our goal ultimately to have teachers and parents working together? Yes. Now an interesting but slightly controversial point. Your question is, how about involving parents in this process? Well, you've just heard my thoughts on how to involve parents in the process of identifying lagging skills and unsolved problems. What about involving parents in the solving of those problems? Well, I think it's great that we'd want to involve parents in the solving of the problems at school. I just don't think it's always necessary. In fact, slightly controversial point of view here, although people don't usually do uh, This is one that people sometimes look a little sketchy when I'm saying it. I've probably said it on the program before. There's not much I haven't said on the program before, by the way. Every once in a while I come up with something new on the program, but most of it's the same old stuff. But that's okay. People tell me that it's a good way to refresh and a good way to stay fresh and a good way to keep being reminded of where they want to be at. You keep listening. I'll keep doing the program. So here's what I sometimes get interesting looks on. You don't need the parents to solve any help you solve anywhere nearly the number of problems that you think they do, that you do. I think that in schools there is a tendency to think you need parents when you don't. Are there, hold on, are there some unsolved problems that you will need parents for? Yes, probably, well, some homework sometimes. Uh, tardiness to school sometimes, truancy from school sometimes, falling asleep at school sometimes. Notice I'm saying sometimes to all of these. Why only sometimes? Don't all of those mean there's something wrong going on at home? No. When will we find out if we need parental involvement? When we've done the empathy step of plan B and we find out what's really getting in the student's way. That's when. But I wouldn't automatically, I assume I need parents for any of those. You find out if you need parents when you find out what's getting in the kid's way, and if what's getting in the kid's way requires parental assistance to address, by golly, you need them. But if what's getting in the way does not require parents to address, you may not need them. No, don't. I'm not saying you don't want to keep parents informed. You just may not need their involvement to solve the problem. Plus, sometimes you don't have them even if you want them. which means we do our best in the building to try to solve problems that we wish we had the parents, but don't. Luckily, we don't need the parents anywhere nearly as often as we think we do, so we should be okay. 
All right, we've got a few more here. And then we're going to call it a day. Well, this is a quick one. Hello, I recently attended one of Dr. Green's talks. He indicated that the uh, assessment of lagging skills and unsolved problems was available on a website. I can't find it. Can you direct me, please? Sure. I probably should have answered this one by email. It would have been faster, way faster. Uh, what you do is you get on the Lives and Balance website. I'm going there now. You go to the uh, down to the bottom of the left-hand side where it says Resources. You click on the Paperwork tab. And then halfway down the page, there's a place that says Click Here for the Assessment of Lagging Skills and Unsolved Problems, Revised 11-12-12. You click there, you got the new one. And here's what you're going to notice about the new one. The instructions have changed. Um, they're clearer. The... Um, numbers that used to be, the rating that used to be on the uh, right-hand side of the unsolved problems, gone. I found that did make cause more confusion than it was worth. The sample unsolved problems at the bottom are much better. And there's one lagging skill that's been added, one that I have been meaning to add for a very long time, but recently did. The new lagging. I turned my microphone off so I could swallow a mouthful of tea, but then turned it on prematurely, so you heard the swallow. Sorry. Sensory motor difficulties has been added to the uh, assessment of lagging skills and unsolved problems. That was a horrible oversight to begin with, and now it's there. Took me long enough. There is a new Plan B cheat sheet as well. looks the same, but it is um, a little bit more consistent with what I've been saying lately. You know, the model continues to evolve. Only the name has been changed to protect the innocent. Some of you know what that means, and others of you will have to wait. All right, but that's where you can find the assessment of lagging skills and unsolved problems. And finally, this last question. Good morning, Dr. Green. Um, I attended a workshop that you completed here in St. John's, Newfoundland, Canada, on your model and the use of the assessment of lagging skills and unsolved problems. We have many complex cases whereby... a means to focus the conversation with many service providers when we get together as a group to determine treatment goals is needed. Before we look at implementing the assessment of lagging skills and unsolved problems within our organization, I just needed to confirm that those utilizing the ALSIP don't require any specialized training to use it. Um, sorry it took me so long to respond to that one. Um, I don't think you really need specialized training to use the assessment of lagging skills and unsolved problems. I think you need 50 minutes. I think you need somebody who can explain the items if the items need to be explained. I think you need a 
person who's leading the discussion, who knows how to keep the discussion on track uh, and help people resist the temptation to theorize, hypothesize, and tell stories during the meeting. I think you need someone who is skilled, and I think you can pick this skill up by listening to the... um, program in the listening library on the Lives in the Balance website on the assessment of lagging skills and unsolved problems. Um, That's in the listening library for educators. Um, If you go to the about the assessment of lagging skills and unsolved problems section of the listening library, you'll um, find three programs. The first one of those is the most current, and um, it will explain how to use the assessment of lagging skills and unsolved problems. He, um, so do you need any special knowledge to do it? No, I would say those are the basic requirements, and I think those are skills that people can pick up on by listening to that radio program. I get a lot of feedback on the assessment of lagging skills and unsolved problems. It is hard to use in the beginning, and then you get good at it. And then, well, people tell me there's no going back. They don't only say that on Plan B. People will tell me, I can't believe how I used to treat these kids. Now I know how to treat them. There's no going back. But people who've been doing meetings with the assessment of lagging skills and unsolved problems as a discussion guide, they tell me the same thing. Because there really is sort of a logical sequence of events here. We need lenses first. That's lagging skills. Then we need to make a connection between those lagging skills and the specific conditions in which those lagging skills are making it difficult for a student to meet our expectations. Those are unsolved problems. The specific expectations the student is having trouble meeting. We need to know the mountain that lies before us. Kids probably got a lot of lagging skills and a lot of unsolved problems. The only way, as I said at the beginning of the program, to prioritize unsolved problems is to know what they are in the first place. Next in the sequence, prioritizing. Next in the sequence, now that we have the right lenses on, we know what all these unsolved problems are. We've prioritized. We're going to designate people to take primary responsibility for solving those problems with that kid. Then we're going to make sure they have the time to do it. Then we're going to have a few people in the building, seven or eight, a core group, get good at doing it first. Going to have them meet regularly so as to listen to their recorded work and give each other feedback and go back and do it again. They are slowly but surely going to get good at it over about a three- or four-month period of time. We're not going to start with the whole building. It's too big. Then, after we've got some people in the building who are starting to get pretty good at it, we're going to start spreading it building-wide. Everybody in the building should have been exposed to the model after about a year with a meaningful number six, seven, eight of them really starting to get good at it. 
so they can help the other people get good at it. Two good years of hitting it hard to feel like you've got it rolling in your building and one more year probably to make sure that it is embedded in everyday life in the building. As people who attended the second annual conference of Lives in the Balance heard from one of the schools that's been participating in our project in Maine, that school whose principal is now Nina Aaron, who's one of our educators on our educators panel, you heard her telling you how her discipline referrals went from 142 the year before the model was implemented to 42 two years later. Now we're talking. But now we're through talking because we are out of time for the day. Thanks for joining in. Join in again next week for our last program of 2013. I look forward to talking to you then.